1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse number 6. This morning we will uh, conclude the First Peter series. Uh, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Josh will be preaching and uh, we will be praying for the entire team that will be going to uh, Hartford City and they will be launching that uh, that church two weeks from today. So uh, we're excited about that. And so we'll be, he'll be preaching and we'll be praying in the 11 o'clock service over that team. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. First Peter chapter five, verse six, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober and be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen and to settle you. Holy Spirit, we um, are so thankful to be in this place today. And Lord, we have already experienced uh, your presence in a very real and unique way. So thankful for the message that no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, you are always there. You have promised never to leave us or forsake us. Even in our difficult places, you promise to be with us. And I ask God in these next few minutes, Lord, that you would anoint me, help me to speak that which comes only from you. I pray, God, that uh, your anointing would rest upon me, not because I have earned it or deserve it, but because I need it to rightly communicate your word. And I pray, God, that you would supernaturally arrest the attention of everyone in this room. And I pray, God, that we would hear clearly the word of the Lord and we would be changed and transformed by that word in these moments together today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, um, as believers, I, I think that it is safe to say that most of us at some point uh, in our Christian journey, most of us wrestle with the tension uh, between being a person who just lays back and says, God, whatever you want to do, you can do it. I'll just let you and your sovereignty take over and how much we are supposed to engage the battle. I think that's something that we always wonder. Are we just supposed to kick back and let God do? Or are we supposed to resist and, and engage and battle along the way? Do we fight, for instance, against persecution and suffering? Do we seek to avoid it? Is there a need for us to have some kind of vigorous effort um, against the enemy when we find ourselves experiencing that kind of suffering? In 1956, it was an Alfred Hitchcock um, film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Anybody ever heard of that? Or, okay, we have a few hands. And there was a, a really popular song that came out of that movie. Um, and the, the first verse goes like this. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what should I be or what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? And here's what she said to me. I feel like we could all sing along now. Okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. 
Kesara, Sarah. How many know that song? All right. Doris Day sang that, made that popular in 1956. So is this the attitude that we as believers are supposed to have? Well, Kesara, Sarah, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I'm not going to concern myself with it. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to resist. I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to lay back, trust God, do nothing. What is our response supposed to be in difficult times, in times of hardship, times where the world seems to be going crazy, times where it's not all that popular being a Christian, what is our response to be as exiles who live in a world in which we don't really belong? There are three crucial lesson, lessons that Peter gives in these five verses for Christians in exile when they are faced with suffering. I want to talk about those just for a few minutes this morning. Number one, as exiles who face suffering, God calls us to be humble and to submit ourselves to him. Look at the text in verse number six. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on him for he cares for you. Earlier in 1 Peter, Peter has already mentioned that persecution and suffering may very well come to faithful Christians. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3 and verse 17, Peter has said that there are times that suffering will come as a result of the will of God, that it may very well be the will of God that allows us to experience suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, Peter says that when a fiery trial comes, we shouldn't think it strange. We should not run away from it, but we should rejoice and rejoice in the fact that we've been allowed to suffer with Christ. And then later in chapter 4, Peter says that God actually uses our suffering to purify us and to cleanse us and to make us more like him. So if that is true and Suffering can be according to the will of God and we're supposed to rejoice and God uses that suffering to conform us into his image and likeness that it seems that the believer is supposed to surrender to that rather than to resist it. As a matter of fact, Peter says that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Remember last Sunday, I I concluded with this little quote from J.I. Packer. I want to put it on the screen again, and I want you to read carefully with me. And, And this is what Peter is talking about when he says that we are to humble ourselves or lower ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Packer says, we grow up into Christ by growing down into lowliness. We offload our fantasies of omnicompetence. We start trying to be trustful, obedient, dependent, patient, and willing in our relationship to God. We give up our dreams of being greatly admired for doing wonderfully well. We begin teaching ourselves unemotionally and matter-of-factly to recognize that we are not likely ever to appear or actually to be much of a success by the world's standards. He goes on to say this, we bow to the events that rub our noses in the reality of our own weakness and we look to the God for strength quietly to cope. It is impossible, I love this statement, at the same time to give the impression both that I am a great Christian and that Jesus Christ is a great master. 
So the Christian will practice curling up small, as it were, so that in and through him or her, the Savior may show himself great. Packer says, that is what I mean by growing downward. Humble yourself under the hand of the mighty God. We are to grow downward as we grow upward. It's really the essence of the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who humble themselves under God's hand and say, God, I will allow you to do in my life whatever you desire to do and I won't resist your work in my life. Notice that the humbling is under the mighty hand of God. How many, how many trust the hand of God? Raise your hand if you trust the hand of God. That's a hand I don't mind being under. Now, there may be some of you, and maybe some of you would feel the same about me, that I'm not so sure I would want to totally put myself under your thumb and under your hand and let you do with me whatever you want to do. And I'm sure some of you feel the same way if, if it was in reverse. And so we, we have to be pretty choosy about who we're going to humble ourselves under. But Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let me tell you a little bit about the hand of God. It was the hand of God that actually delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage in Exodus chapter three. And again, in Exodus chapter six, the Bible says that God delivered them by his mighty hand. It was the hand of God that did incredible wonders in the book of Acts through the hands of the apostles. It was really the hand of Christ at work in the apostles. In Acts chapter four, one of my favorite stories, Peter and John have just been thrown into prison because they have preached the gospel. They've been told never to say another word about Jesus. They were beaten almost without mercy. And then they were released and they were told, we'll not bother you again if you don't preach about Jesus. If you just keep your mouth shut and say nothing about Christ, we will leave you alone. Well, of course, Peter and John, they weren't going to stop talking about Jesus. And so the first thing they did is they met with the church and the church prayed. And I want you to notice the church did not pray that God would deliver them from struggle or take the call away from them. But notice what the church prays in Acts chapter 4. Listen listen to the words of of the, the apostles. Truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever, notice, whatever God your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, it was God's hand that created all of this. It was God's hand that led Christ to the cross. And then they go on and said, notice their prayer, Lord, look on their threats. They're threatening us and grant to your servants, not that we can get out of our call, but that we may with all boldness speak your word. And then God stretch out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So Peter, as he's praying, is saying, it is the hand of God that does the miraculous. And so the point is clear from Peter. We are to see God's hand behind the suffering, behind the persecution, behind the struggle. God's not surprised by our struggle. It is his hand upon us. And indeed, he is using it to humble us in his presence. Humble yourselves under the hand of God that he might exalt us. That he might exalt us. Bring ourselves low that he might exalt us. Look at this in due time. How how many feel in your heart of hearts that God is always on time? 
You think God is always on time. How many have ever thought God wasn't on time for a moment or two? All right. So there's that tension there. We theologically, we believe God's always on time. But when it comes right down to reality, we are saying, God, you need to hurry up sometimes and make this thing happen. I'm not at all patient with what you are doing. Peter is saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God's hand is faithful. You can trust it. Humble yourselves under his hand and in due time, he will exalt you. Peter actually had in mind eternal glory in due time. He'll talk about eternal glory at the end. We humble ourselves under his hand. This is so important by casting uh, all of our anxiety on him. How many know that uh, 2020 is a difficult year to be anxiety free? Can you, you, all right, you all understand this has been a challenging year. And yet um, Peter says, humble yourselves under the hand of the mighty God. He will exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The, the, the word cast is a really powerful word. In, in Luke 19, um, when the disciples are preparing the donkey that's going to bring Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, they take their garments and they cast them on the donkey. That is, they let go of them. They, they, they throw them onto the donkey. They say, these garments now belong to someone else. They're no longer mine. That's what God wants us to do. And, and, I, and I tell you, as a person, and I'm not talking just about an anxious moment or two. I spent one year really struggling just a few years back. And some of you were here when that happened, where anxiety was really a difficult issue for me to deal with. But what God invites us to do is to let go of our anxiety and to cast it on him to throw it all on him. Why? Because we know that he cares for us. You see, when difficult times come, look at me for just a moment. When difficult times come, suffering comes, persecution comes, you are treated poorly because of your faith. When that comes, when struggle comes, if we become anxious, listen, please get this. It is a telltale, listen, it is a telltale sign I'm anxious because I'm not sure I can make it. I'm not sure I have enough strength. I'm not sure I can take one more thing. I'm not sure I can get over this. Hump. All of those things are about me. I'm not sure I can. It's a telltale sign that I'm trusting myself. Say man instead of him. So we're invited to cast all of our anxiety on him. If I'm still carrying my anxiety, it's because I still think I need to be better. I need to be stronger. I need to get through it. And the reality is it is not us. It's not myself that needs to make it. I need to trust him. I need to cast my care on him because he cares for me. Elizabeth Elliot so beautifully wrote this. Resignation is surrender to fate. Acceptance is surrender to God. Resignation lies down quietly in an empty universe. Acceptance rises up to meet the God who fills the universe with purpose and destiny. Resignation says, I can't. God says, I can. Resignation says, it's all 
It's all over for me. Acceptance says, now that I'm here, Lord, what's next? Resignation says, what a waste. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? Listen, folks, if we are going to survive in a world in which we don't belong, we have to humble and submit ourselves when the suffering and the difficulties come. Secondly, however, as exiles who face suffering, God calls us to resist Satan and remain steadfast in the faith. So look right here for just a moment. So on one hand, when difficulties come, I'm supposed to submit to God under his mighty hand. On the other hand, I am supposed to resist Satan and remain steadfast in the faith. And there's always that tension of laying before the sovereignty of God and trusting him and actively doing what God has called us to do. Look at what Peter writes. Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. While we submit to God, we are to be alert to Satan's tactics and we are to resist him. To resist and be steadfast, listen, we must be spiritually alert and we need to seek to possess spiritual discernment. Now for the next seven or eight minutes, I'm going to give you uh, if, if you don't really like the beginning or the end of the sermon, that's okay. I want you to get this middle stuff because this is the most important thing I'm going to say all day is this little teaching in the middle because I think this is crucial to our world today. So I want, want you to really listen and focus. Believers today, I'm just going to say it, we have become spiritually deceived. We are not mentally, spiritually alert. We are more like the sleepy disciples in Gethsemane. And we have very little clue what is going on around us. Charles Spurgeon said of discernment, he said, discernment is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference, this, get this, between right and almost right. Can I act old for just a moment? I'm now 56 years old and I've pastored for 35. And I have watched one of the reasons our vision is to develop biblically sound believers who reflect Christ's character is because I have watched for three and a half decades the church world become more and more biblically illiterate. And we have an inability for the most part in the church, even behind many pulpits, to discern between right and almost right. As a matter of fact, um, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think the point is made, there are two verses that most of the church world knows today. And that is, number one, judge not lest you be judged. And number two, God is love. And everything falls under those two categories. And you can pretty much make everything okay. And everything is all right. If those, you can't judge me, don't judge. And God is love anyway. And so I'm free to do whatever I want. And most Christians, listen, because they don't know the word. And those two verses sound right. They've heard those somewhere before. And, and God is love is kind of a warm fuzzy thought, most Christians are sucked right in and have a complete, listen to me, inability to discern between what is right and almost right. 
And if we're going to navigate this world and make a difference and put people's lives back together and disciple them, we must be people that are very keen when it comes to spiritual discernment. So how do I develop godly discernment? I'm going to give you five or six ways. Number one, since God is the only one who can can grant wisdom, we should ask God for wisdom. James chapter 1 and verse 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give to him liberally without upbraiding him or without saying you should know better. God delights in giving us wisdom. And number one, if we want to discern, we should ask God, we should pray for wisdom. Number two, we need to recognize that there are some absolutes. There are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. If you believe that, say amen. We are being told by every imaginable Hollywood entertainer, most politicians and the academically elite that to believe that some things are wrong for everybody or some things are right for everybody is a misnomer and we are being taught to believe there is no absolute truth. And that is much of the reason why we have an unraveling in our culture today because we have believed that there are no absolutes. I'm going to tell you, and young people, listen, if we're going to make a difference, you've got to know there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. There's this little hidden verse. I guess it's not really hidden, but it's, it, it's an inter- interesting verse that, that you may not pick up the point right off the bat, but it, it, it's an important statement. In Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah is about ready to be destroyed because of their, their wickedness. The homosexuality ha- has become uh, absolutely rampant. It is now applauded much of like, like we are seeing in our culture today. And, and God had really had enough and was going to destroy it. But he sent two messengers to Lot, angelic messengers. If you know the story in Genesis 19, they went into Lot's home. And the wickedness had become so great in, in, in the city that the, the men that were so perverted tried to press in to Lot's home to actually rape or molest the messengers that had come to speak to Lot. And as they were pushing in and Lot was trying to hold them back, in Genesis 19.9, they say of Lot, he is the one who keeps trying to be judge. I'm going to tell you, listen, if you stand up for what is right, Someone is going to tell you, you are judging them. Someone is going to tell you, you shouldn't be judging anyone that is not up to you. And that's a whole nother sermon we can talk about. But we've got to recognize if we're going to discern correctly, there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. Thirdly, we need to develop our understanding and depth in the word of God. Please look at me and listen. I want you to catch all of this this morning. You will only discern You will only discern to the level or or in, in correlation to your understanding of the word of God. If you're not in the word, if you're not studying the word, if you're not reading the word, if you're not listening to the word being preached, listen to me. You don't have a chance of discerning between what is right and what is almost right. You are going to buy almost right hook, line and sinker. How do I know that? Hebrews 4. It's not on the screen, so just look at me. Hebrews 4, verse 12. The word of God is alive. It is powerful. It is 
quicker, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen to what it's able to do. It is able to divide asunder soul and spirit. Think about how tightly held together soul and spirit are. That is a precise cut. The word of God is able to divide asunder soul and spirit and is the discerner, the word is kritikos, of the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. How, how close together are the thoughts and the intentions of our heart? They are pretty closely meshed together, but the word of God is so precise that it is able to discern between the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. But only the word can do that. And the reason that we are struggling, but knowing the difference between what is right and almost right is we need a precise cut. And that precise cut is the word of God. And without it, you will never be able to discern the difference between right and almost right. Somebody say amen. If you believe that now in Hebrews chapter five, the writer of Hebrews says that solid food, he's talking about the word of God belongs to the full of age or the mature that they who by reason of use have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. You will not discern it unless you fill yourself with the word of God. That's why David said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Listen, you can't just wake up and ask God for a warm, fuzzy spiritual discernment and never put in the time to read the word. You will buy into the world's philosophy just like that unless you are a person of the word. And I, may, I know it may seem boring to some and old-fashioned to some, but that's what Glad Tidings Muncie, Hartford City, Dunkirk is going to be committed to because if we're going to survive and be effective, we must be people who know the word and discern discern truth from air. Say amen. If you believe that. So we have to develop our understanding in the word. Number four, we have to imitate Christ. That's the best way to discern. First Corinthians 11, one, as we grow in him, our values, our desires, our thoughts all become more like his. How do I become an imitator of Christ? What do I imitate about him? We should start by loving what he loves and hating what he hates. It's pretty simple. If you want to be an imitator of Christ, start by hating what he hates and love what he loves. He hates false worship, Deuteronomy 12. He hates lying in the way of the wicked, Proverbs 12. He hates, Proverbs 6, proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet swift to run to evil, a false witness, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Amen, Pastor Kevin. That's good. Yeah, one who sows discord. We are to hate what God hates and we are to love what God loves. What does he love? He loves, 2 Corinthians 9, a cheerful giver. He loves our heartfelt prayers, Revelation 5, 8. He loves to see us do good and share with others, Hebrews 13, 6. He loves inviting us near to him and his kingdom because it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, Luke 12. Hate evil, Amos 5, and love good and establish justice in the gate. Number five, we need to choose our friends wisely. Because it's a key to spiritual alertness and discernment. Proverbs twelve twenty six: The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked leads them astray. I want you to see what Pastor Wilbur Chapman said many years ago. It's not the ship in the water. But it's the water in the ship that sinks it. So it's not the Christian in the world, but the world and the Christian that constitutes the danger. 
We have flirted too long with the world, folks. We have become so much like the world and we put it under the guise that we're trying to reach them. Now we're just ending up being like them. And the water is getting in the ship. We don't have to worry about the storms from the outside. God has said he will be faithful to help us navigate the storms from the outside. You're not going to get sunk by storm. You're going to get sunk by compromise, godlessness, sin, impurity, a lack of holiness. That's what will sink us. And if we are going to be people who spiritually discern, we need to watch the company we keep because the company we keep often will drag us down and put water in the ship that will ultimately destroy us. That, my friend, is good preaching whether you really like it or not, all right? You must know that Satan's goal is your destruction. He seeks whom he may devour. Apostle Paul in First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, he uses the word snare when he talks about what the enemy will do, a snare the believer. Peter calls Satan a roaring lion who is bent on our destruction. The goal of his hunt is to devour. The word devour literally means to drink down. The picture is a predator with one gulp destroying his enemy. And I just want you to understand that Satan's goal is your destruction. But like good soldiers, Peter says, resist him steadfast in the faith. Being steadfast in the faith is not the concept of holding some doctrines close to our chest. That's important. But resisting him in the faith is about remaining firm in our trust of God. Not shifting to some other means of security. Not trusting someone else or something else to keep me. Resisting him in the faith knowing that only God is able to keep me. And finally, we receive encouragement knowing that we are not alone. Because the same sufferings, Peter says, that we are experienced, experiencing are also experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Can I just remind you again, and I'll do it one more time at the close. But, but Peter is talking to people who feel like exiles. They are exiles. They're outsiders. They're living in a world that they're not really welcome in any longer. They're standing for holiness. Nobody else is. They're saying there's truth and the rest are saying there's not truth. They're saying there's one God. The others are saying they're multiple gods. Because of that, they're suffering. They're being pushed back. They're being ostracized. And Peter says, you can take some hope in knowing that your brothers around the world, the brotherhood around the world is experiencing this too. Uh, I think those of us here in America um, who are a little bit nervous and anxious about some of the things that seem to be coming down right now, we can take heart in knowing that our brothers and sisters around the world have experienced what we have, are experiencing, maybe just in the early stages. They've experienced it some places for centuries. We can take comfort in that. One of my, uh, one of my favorite principles is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know, sometimes, and maybe this will speak to someone today, sometimes when you're dealing with a, a temptation or a sin, maybe even an addiction, you... you Start thinking you're alone. Nobody else feels what I feel. Nobody else struggles with that same temptation. And so what happens when you feel like you're alone is you don't want to tell anybody. I can't tell anybody. They're going to think I'm some kind of horrible person. I don't want them to know about my struggle. And so we keep that struggle to ourselves. And we don't seek out help. And your weakest spot is when you're by yourself. The enemy can pummel away at you and defeat you. So we hold it in and we keep it to ourselves. And ultimately, the enemy will devour 
The first Corinthians 10, 13 says there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. You know what that means? What, what you're going through and you think you're the only one going through it. No, no, it's a common struggle. It's a common struggle to deal with the lust of the flesh. It's a common struggle to deal with the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You're not the only one. Don't hide it. Find help and someone to stand with you. No temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will always with that temptation provide a way of escape. He'll always provide a way of escape. We can find comfort in knowing that others are going through what we're going through as well. Henri Nouwen said this, making one's own wounds a source of healing does not call for a sharing of superficial personal pains. Let me stop there. We have, um, we've crossed over at some point, maybe in the last 10 years, 20 years, I don't know. Um, we've kind of crossed over into this thing where we think the best thing to do is just be so vulnerable that we just share everything. We just spill out all of our superficial pain as if that's going to give us healing. That's not necessarily the case. What Henri Nouwen says, making one's wounds a source of healing does not call for a sharing of our superficial personal pains, but for a constant willingness to see one's own pain as suffering and suffering as rising from the depth of the human condition, which all men share. In other words, I find strength in my suffering, knowing not that my suffering's terrible and I want to whine about it, but knowing that others What I'm experiencing is just an outgrowth of what humanity is struggling. We, the Bible says that we are, we are groaning and travailing. We're waiting for the day that this all changes. This is a struggle. Why is it a struggle? Because look at me, because we're living in a world to which we do not belong. That's why you feel the struggle. Let me give you the last point and I'll, I'll be done. And this one will be very quickly. So as exiles who face suffering, God calls us to rest in the graciousness of a faithful God. How many believe God is faithful? Do you believe that? He's a faithful God. Look at what Peter says here in verse number 10. But may the God of grace, all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Watch this. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Not only can I find strength from knowing that others have experienced or are experiencing what I am feeling, I find great strength in knowing that the God of all grace has not abandoned me. How many are thankful for the grace of God? Say amen if you're thankful for God's grace. Peter has identified that God, yes, will judge us in chapter 4. But Peter wants his readers to know that God is to them a God of all grace. This is the God, Peter says, the God of all grace is the one who has called you to eternal glory. Can I just have you look at the screen? Just stare at it for a moment. And I want you to um, look at the second line, eternal glory. And look at the fourth line. First two words, a while. Look at the contrast. We suffer a while, but we are called to eternal glory. Sometimes we think, I just can't take this anymore. This is lasting too long. You're suffering a while. The God of all grace who is with you has called you to eternal glory. 
Our light and momentary affliction, Paul says, which is only for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at the things which are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Romans 8.18, I reckon the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I want you to understand that we suffer for a while, but we are called to eternal glory. After we've suffered a while, he will perfect us. He will establish us. He will strengthen us. He will settle us. Actually, if you look at these words in the Greek, they're not all different nuances. Peter uses very closely related words to say this. He says, this is what your suffering is producing in you. It is perfecting you. It's establishing you. It's strengthening you. It's settling you. It is preparing you and us to be a bride without spots, without wrinkle, experiencing the eternal glory of God. So what should the life of the believer who is suffering or experiencing persecution or being ostracized, what should it look like? We are exiles living in a world to which we don't belong. Number one, it should be a life of humble submission to God under his mighty hand. I'm surrendering God. I see your hand at work in my life. It should be a a life of steadfast and alert faith. It's not deceived by the enemy and does not run from him. And number three, it should be a resting heart that knows that the God of all grace has our best future in mind. And he will ultimately bring it to pass. Just stand with me, if you would. Just leave that screen up, if you would, Kirsten, for just a moment. Stand with me, if you would. Look at number three on the screen one more time. A resting heart. It's kind of hard to have a resting heart when there is a pandemic and there are riots in our big cities and there is unrest. There is all sorts of concerns that we have for our children and our grandchildren. But we need to have a resting heart that knows, I want you to look at this, that the God of all grace has our, look at this, best future in mind. I want you to think with me for just a moment, all right? For just a moment. Peter is writing, and if if you open 1 Peter chapter 1, we did this now months ago. First few verses, he's writing to the, the people in Cappadocia and Bithynia and Galatia that have been scattered. They're dispersed because they are being persecuted. They are exiles. That's who he's writing to. When he gets to the end of his book, the verses we didn't read because it's just his little conclusion. He said, I, I wrote this to you with Silvanus. That's Silas. And uh, Mark is with me here too. And so are all the other Believers, He calls it Babylon, which was really Rome. It was their code word for Rome because they were being persecuted by Rome. All the believers in Babylon and Mark and Silas were all together. We want to encourage you and we want to exhort you. We want you to encourage one another. Greet one another, he says, with a holy kiss. Encourage one another because the God of all grace who is inviting you to eternal glory has your best future in mind. They were exiles. Please look at me and get this. Their best future was not to be happier exiles. 
Their best future was not to be more prosperous exiles. Their best future was not to be exiles who had less, fewer problems. They were exiles who were longing for eternal glory and longing for a home. I think what's happened in the American church, I understand it, it grips me many times as we spend most of our time and our energy trying to make our best future be a better exile life. But your exile life is never your best future. Your best future, since your citizenship is in heaven, your best future is that which you are working toward right now, and it is eternal glory. Say amen if you believe that. We get all bent out of shape when exile life doesn't feel good. Exile life shouldn't feel good because we don't belong here. We're the oddballs. We're the odd ones out. We want to make the biggest difference we can. We want to change our culture the best we can. But the God of all grace has our eternal and best future in mind. Naomi Zacharias, and then I'll be done. Let me just tell you this quick little story with an excerpt or two. She wrote a book called In the Scent of Water, and she tells about her experiences as the director of Wellspring International. She was an advocate for at-risk women and children all around the world. She had, has visited brothels. She's visited foster care homes of children living with HIV AIDS. She's visited refugee camps. Surprisingly, she often finds connections, she says, between her work and some of the classic fairy tales that she grew up with. Unfortunately, she writes, modern versions of these stories often skim over the hardships of life so they can jump right to the part about happily ever after. But the original stories, she says, were honest about the struggle of this real life. She gives a couple of examples. Cinderella. Cinderella was first orphaned and then enslaved before she tried on the glass slipper and her world was changed forever. In the traditional story of the Sleeping Beauty, a fairy who was not invited to a party for the baby's birth put a curse on Sleeping Beauty, namely that at the age of 16, she would prick her finger and die. But a good fairy changed the curse so that the Sleeping Beauty didn't die. Instead, she was placed in a deep sleep only to be wakened by the kiss of a prince. Zacharias writes, even then, Sleeping Beauty slept for a hundred years before she arrived at Happily Ever After. During that prolonged sleep, her relatives mourned, her mother died of a broken heart. The Brothers Grimm, who were the authors of that and many other fairy tales, actually concluded the original fairy tale with these very honest words. They lived happily ever after, as they always do in fairy tales, not quite so often, however, in real life. Here's a conclusion. Just listen and I, I will stop talking when I'm done. All right? Just listen and I'll stop talking. We want the good part of the fairy tale. We have only preserved the idea of happily ever after. On the movie screen and in our minds, we've rewritten the stories and we have forgotten about the battles the heroines chose to fight. We've chosen to overlook the pain and the price that the players had to find love and justice. But the honesty in the original fairy tales reminds us of another important lesson about 
following Christ. Here it is. This present world is not the best of all possible worlds. Our imperfect world only leads us to the best of all possible worlds. Heaven is the happily ever after. And until then, we still live with frogs and century-long naps. Century-long naps doesn't sound so bad, but maybe the frogs. You know, we still live in a world that's a struggle, don't we? We still live in a world that's a struggle. But the God of all grace has called us to eternal glory. And in the already but not yet period that we are in, we are invited to submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God, discern the ploys of the enemy and resist him and stand steadfast in the faith. And then when it's all said and done, trust the graciousness of a faithful God to bring us to our ultimate citizenship. Father, I thank you for your word today. And I thank you that you have called us to eternal glory. And sometimes our light and momentary afflictions seem more like unbearable and unending afflictions. Paul said they are working for us. They are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. For those today, Lord, who may find themselves on the brink, saying, I don't know if I can go anymore, I pray, God, that you would invite them to cast their anxiety on you. For those, Lord, who want to just fight, just kind of box their way through, you invite them to humble themselves under the hand of the mighty God knowing that you will exalt them. To all of us who get tired resisting the enemy, who all of us, to all of us who get weary trying to discern right from almost right, make us keen, loving but keen discerners of our day. And may we all trust ourselves to your gracious faithfulness I pray with heads bowed for just a moment this morning I'm going to ask a simple question maybe you're here today and you're not living for God your heart's not right with him he's not really your Lord you've kind of tried to make your own way never surrendered to his lordship you honestly know that your heart's not right. It's it's not ready to meet Jesus. But you want to make certain that when he returns or when you are taken, that you are ready to meet him. I'd love a chance to pray with you. If that's you, would you just slip up a hand and say, Pastor Kevin, I want to know Jesus today. I want to give him my life. I want to serve him. Anyone in this room who would say, pray for me. Let me ask a second question and then we'll close. How many would 
by upraised hands say, Pastor, I uh, I want God's strength to enable me to stand fast, to humble myself under His hand, and to trust His faithfulness. That's how I want to live. How many would raise your hand?